Cool. Good morning, everybody. It's great to be with you guys um, this morning. And uh, yeah, we're sort of tracking through a bit of a series that wasn't meant to be a series. It kind of just turned into a series of just sort of messages with a bit of a similar theme of, of being in for God. Like we talked about being wholehearted, being generous last week about being devoted, and this week about being hope-filled. And yeah, we're going to go through that passage in Jeremiah 32. I didn't really know it very well until recently, and I don't know if many people know it. It seems like a bit of a random story, but it's awesome. It's really amazing. I'm actually really excited to sort of get into exactly what the point of it is today. And, and with what we've been doing the last few weeks is talking about the idea of being wholehearted or generous or today being having hope. And often we kind of think, yeah, that's good, that's, that's good. We'll, we'll have hope as long as things are kind of going good. <laughs> and that's actually kind of how we use the word hope um, in, in general. We don't really use it the way that the Bible uses it. The way we use hope is more like wish. Like we say, I hope you have a good day. It doesn't mean like, I know you're going to have a good day. <laughs> it's like, I really, I, I wish for you that today is a good day, or I hope you have a good birthday, or I, I hope you have a great holiday. It's, it's this sort of wish that like, oh yeah, it's probably likely that will happen, so, so let's, let's look forward to that. Um, and I was going to call this message hopeful, but, but even that word, it sounds so weak in some ways. Like, I'm, I'm feeling hopeful about this. It's like, oh, maybe it'll happen, maybe not, I'm not really sure. Like, it, it, we, it's kind of a bit of a weak word, and we use it. And often, the way that we think of hope, or can, can sometimes think of hope, means if we have hope, it's because we can see that things are kind of coming together, things are kind of aligning, there's a chance that things might get a bit better, so, so we have a feeling of hope and excitement or anticipation. And then as soon as, actually, oh, that didn't happen, actually, that went bad, I hoped this would happen and I was disappointed and it gets really, really bad, and then we lose hope. And we think, well, actually, everything's gone, like there's no hope. And, and hope, we kind of have hope for a bit while things are good, while things are coming together, but if they all go terrible, we lose hope. That's actually not the biblical definition of hope. The biblical definition of hope is actually it's confidence that even when everything looks terrible, even when there's no evidence that things are going to get better, that we actually act like they are for no other reason than the fact that God has said it. It's actually particularly when things look really, really bad. There's no sort of optimism present. But actually, God has said things are going to change. There's going to be hope. There's going to be, I'm going to do this. And we act in accordance with that with actually confidence. It's not, oh, I hope God will come through. It's, I know he will because he said, and then I can be confident. It's not kind of like we just hope a little bit. Can you click on to the next one um, up there, Josh? We don't, we don't sort of just hope a little bit while we're kind of excited and then it kind of just peters out a bit. But this is like actually when everything's bad, particularly at that point, we still stay filled with hope. And again, that is not easy. <laughs> that is very, very difficult. And, and I want to look at a story today of, of Jeremiah and, and the way that God kind of works in a situation that looks completely hopeless. Um, so just some background to this story. It, it, it's set in a devastating situation. Like, just really, really quick background of, of God has rescued Israelites from Egypt, he's taken them, they've been in the land, God has made this, this group of people to love and worship him, he's had kings that follow him, and God, God cares for them as his people. He's made a covenant, this, this, this commitment to them, and called them to commit to him, but they just forget him again and again. He likens it to committing adultery, they like cheat on God with other gods, 
and they do evil things, and they do it again and again, and God comes to them and speaks to them, and they do it again and again, and eventually it's just so bad that God says, I have to do something, I have to act. They're doing things that are so evil. It even gets to a point when they're offering their children up to other gods and, and sacrifice, like they're doing evil stuff, and God says, I can't let this go anymore, and he comes in judgment. And this setting, and Jeremiah's been saying this is going to happen, and now the setting of, of this is, is the Lord speaks to Jeremiah, and it's in the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah. So the, the king of Babylon's already come, and Zedekiah is now king, and he's kind of, they've got this agreement. It's the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar, but he's come back, and he's, the king of Babylon's come to basically destroy Jerusalem, to take the kings, to take all the people out. And the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, so they're under siege. So that, imagine you're in the city of Jerusalem, and you're trapped with a huge army all around you. Cut off your food supply. Everyone's it's full war, survival mode. And you're, you're imprisoned in the city. You can't get out. You're under siege. Jeremiah, though, is in a double imprisonment because he is also in jail, basically. It says he's in the courtyard of the guard in the royal palace. So he, he may not be so much a prison. Maybe he can sort of move around a bit, but he's cut off. And imagine, like, if you're under siege... People are like, it's like survival mode, like it's just getting enough food. So if you're in prison, like people are not going to really care about you. So Jeremiah's in a pretty bad spot. And he's been faithful to what God has said, but he's ended up here. And he's here because he's been saying that God is going to come in judgment. And Zedekiah knows that. It says, Zedekiah, king of Judah, imprisoned him for saying, why do you prophesy as you do? You say, this is what the Lord says, I'm about to give the city into the hands of the king of Babylon and he will capture it. Zedekiah doesn't like Jeremiah because he's speaking against him. So he says, I haven't had enough of you. I'm just going to put you in jail. I don't want to hear it anymore. So there's this devastating situation. It seems hopeless. Jeremiah knows the king of Babylon is going to come. He's going to destroy Jerusalem. Everyone's in survival mode. People are freaking out. Yet God comes with this crazy command. He says this, Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, son of Shulam, your uncle, is going to come to you and say, Buy my field at Anathoth, because as nearest relative, it's your right and duty to buy it. So God speaks to Jeremiah, Your cousin's going to come and want to do a deal with you for his farm. And this field is, one author basically said, like it's on the land the Babylonians are already on. It's like they've already taken the field. And this guy's coming to Jeremiah, and it happens. So God said, this is going to happen. And straight away, just as the Lord had said, my cousin, Hanamel, came to me in the courtyard of the guard and said, buy my field at Anathoth. And you think, that's not very, like, like your cousin comes to visit you in jail to sell his field that's already been taken over by the enemy, and the whole city is about to be destroyed and wiped out, and it's like, can you just buy my farm? Like, it's, it's crazy, like... No one's thinking about buying houses then. Like, everyone's thinking about how to eat and how not to die. No one's going to sign a contract and go through settlement and do all that sort of stuff. Like, no one's thinking that way. And particularly Jeremiah's in jail even. Yet, yet his cousin comes and says, redeem my field. I want you to buy it. This is crazy thing. And Jeremiah does it because God said it was going to happen and it happened like straight away. So he says, I knew this was the word of the Lord. So I bought the field at Anathoth from my cousin Hanamel and weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver. So it's not a small amount of money. It's buying a field. It's, it's not cheap. And he signed it 
sealed the deed, had it witnessed, weighed out the silver on the scale. So it goes through all the official things. Like for us today, we, we sign the contract, you have the settlement, you pay, you have the lawyers. They do it all. It's all official. Like, and um, they make a big deal. I took the deed of purchase, sealed the copy, the terms and conditions, as well as the unsealed copy. I gave this deed to Baruch, son of Nariah, son of Mahasir, in the presence of my cousin Hanamel and of the witnesses. So people are witnessing this, people are signing this, they go through all the official things. All people, the Jews in the courtyard see this, the people are probably wondering, what's going on? Like, why is this guy buying a field that's already been stolen, that we're about to be invaded? Like, well, why is he doing this? He even then says this, this is what the Lord Almighty says, take these documents, both sealed and unsealed, copies of the deed of purchase, put them in a clay jar so they will last a long time. So then he make, basically makes a time capsule for these. He wants all these documents to be protected, to be guarded, to last a long time. You think, why is he doing this? And it says this, For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says, Houses, fields, vineyards will again be bought in this land. Like, it makes no sense to do this. <laughs> it makes no sense to buy a field when you're in jail and you're about to get taken out and your city is going to be destroyed. But as a prophetic act, that actually, there's no hope if you look around. Everything is devastated. But he says, Actually, we're coming back. Actually, life will return to normal. Actually, God's going to restore this city. Actually, there will be a time when we do what I'm doing now again. We will buy houses. We will plant vineyards. We will sell things. We will live together. And like, there's no evidence at all that that's going to happen. But he acts like it will as a sign. Chris Wright says it this way. He probably endured the ridicule of the crowded courtyard. People would have laughed at him. He could expect to be the butt of scornful pity for days to come. Like, why are you doing that, Jeremiah? It's a waste of money. Like, like, there's no point. Yet he had created a public, written, verified, enduring prophetic signpost, pointing to a future beyond the immediate catastrophe. He, he did this act of hope that says there's, there's hope. God is going to restore this. God is going to move again. God is going to shift things. And this is just crazy. It's like the, the one situation that looks hopeless, he acts in hope and is filled with hope. And it's hard to kind of picture what this would be like. Like this is thousands of years ago, like what this would be like. I was trying to think through it. And, and like in some ways, it would be kind of like if we imagine we're in Australia and it's basically being invaded. It's like... It's like tomorrow when the war began or something like that. Like people are coming in, like the, 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 the ships just surrounding um, our coast. And this, this country is invading us and people recognize that actually we've got no hope. Like they're bigger than us, they're stronger than us. What are we going to do? It's full-on war zone. Like it's, it's just survival mode, war, catastrophe. There's even bombs going off. Like, like it's not fun to think about. Just, just imagine that. Like it's a full-on situation. Imagine it's even made worse because you're in jail because you said this was going to happen and now you're a political prisoner. You're seen as a traitor to the country because you warned about this. So, so everyone's in survival mode. You're in jail. You're thinking everything's about to be destroyed. What are you, you going to do? You're sitting there and your cousin comes along and says, I've got this farm out west that I want to sell. <laughs> Can you buy it off me? And, and it's the last bit of money that you have. And you think, what the heck? <laughs> like, like, and no one is buying farms. Like, in this farm, like, the enemy is already on it. 
Like, why would I buy a farm? And yet you buy it. And you buy it and you do it properly. You don't, it's not just like a word of mouth thing. Like, you actually sign the contract, you have the settlement, you have the lawyers somehow. Like, you, you do it and it's, it's all legit. And, and, you, and you buy this field because even though there's no evidence, you're convinced that actually, no, there is hope. Life will go back to normal. People will buy farms, people will build houses. God will deliver us from this situation. Like, like, that's just so crazy to even imagine that. But actually, that is what hope looks like in Scripture. One author, Eugene Peterson, says this, What we call hoping is often only wishing. We want things we think are impossible, but we have better sense than to spend any money or commit our lives to them. Biblical hope, though, is an act like buying a field in Anathoth. Hope acts on the conviction that God will complete the work that he has begun, even when the appearances, especially when the appearances oppose it. It's actually to be filled with hope for no other reason that God has said and he will do what he has said. And that that is very difficult, right? And even just in our world today and maybe in many of our lives today, you just sort of think about that. Um, that is very countercultural and strange, like to act like that. The normal way to think and act is to be quite cynical. And if you watch the news, if you, know, if you watch, just look at the state of the world, more and more it seems like people are not full of hope, but they are nervous and worried, skeptical, cynical. And the thing that happens then is we start to step back and we sort of say, well, actually, There's no hope. (laughs) Like, let's not act. Like, let's just withdraw. It's just too difficult. There's there's no point. And we start to move away. And what this call is to actually, in those situations, when it actually looks like there's no hope, to still act, to still invest, actually in those places to, to trust and to step in. But that's really, really hard. And even for Jeremiah, it's interesting. Jeremiah does what God told him to do, but he seems kind of confused about it. The, the passage keeps going. I'm not going to read through all of it, but um, the rest of chapter 32 is really interesting to read through. But basically, he, he does what God says to do. He, he buys the field. It has it witness and so forth. But then he starts to pray. And in his prayer, he seems kind of confused. It says this, After I'd given the deed of purchase to Baruch, son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord. And he starts his prayer just praising and acknowledging who God is. Sovereign Lord, you've made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. And he keeps going. He praises God. He remembers how God delivers them from Egypt. He remembers how God places them in the land, how he's been faithful, how he's just. He recognizes that God has been patient, even though they completely again and again ignore him and rebel against him. And it's just this prayer of kind of almost reminding himself of the acts of God and who God is. And he gets to the end of it and he says, see, like he's looking. He says, see how the siege ramps are built up to take the city because of the sword, famine and plague. The city will be taken into the hands of the Babylonians who are attacking us. What you have said has happened. God said this would happen. And now you see. And though the city will be given into the hands of the Babylonians, you, sovereign Lord, say to me, buy the field with silver and have the transaction witness. That's this sense of Jeremiah's confused. (laughs) 
It's like, you've said, God, that this is going to be destroyed. It's happening. I can see it happening. Yet you say, buy a field. And, and Jeremiah even seems, in a sense, be struggling to have hope. He's, he's obeying God, but it wasn't his idea. And he's kind of confused about it. And in the midst of this devastating situation, God responds. And God has been speaking about judgment. And he's been speaking through Jeremiah. But it's like as soon as it gets to a point where things are actually bad, God just switches and starts speaking about hope. And he starts just giving these amazing promises. I'm just going to read, read the next bit for a little bit, um, just, just, just to hear what he says. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I am about to give this city into the hand of the Babylonians and to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who will capture it. The Babylonians who are attacking the city will come in and set it on fire. They will burn it down along with the houses where the people arouse my anger by burning incense on the roofs to Baal and pouring out drink offerings to other gods. God says he will bring judgment. He will do what he has said. But then he says this to Jeremiah, you were saying about the city, by the sword, famine, and plague, it will be given into the hands of the king of Babylon. But this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I will surely gather them from all the lands where I banish them in my furious anger and great wrath. I will bring them back to this place and let them live in safety. They will be my people and I will be their God. I will give them singleness of heart and action so they will always fear me and that all will go well for them and for their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them, and I will inspire them to fear me so that they will never turn away from me. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and soul. Fields will be bought for silver, and deeds will be signed, sealed and witnessed in the territory of Benjamin, in the villages around Jerusalem, in the towns of Judah, and in the towns of the hill country of the western foothills and of the Negev, because I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. It's like things are going bad, and then God just gives these amazing promises. He even says to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, you're the one who's talking about judgment. Like, I'm talking about hope. I'm talking about all the things I'm going to do. I'm going to restore them. I'm going to restore their fortunes. I'm going to call them back to myself. And it's interesting, Jeremiah's struggling. He's not the one that's full of hope. In many ways, it's actually Yahweh. God's the one who's full of hope. Yahweh's the one that commands Jeremiah to do this action. It's his idea. He says, you're the one who's going to go buy this field. But God thought of it. He didn't think of it. And then Yahweh is the one who gives the hope-filled promises. He, he says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to restore them. I'm going to bring them back. And these, these are amazing promises that, don't, that point beyond just coming back to the land, but point to the new covenant and, and the hope of forgiveness of sins and Jesus, and point beyond that even to the hope of the whole earth being restored and people being planted and established forever and never turning away. Like God's making these amazing promises. And we actually know through the rest of Scripture and through history, that Yahweh always fulfills his hope-filled promises. This happened. Like, it, it looks completely hopeless, but God brought them back 70 years later, and he re-put them in the land. And there's still lots of problems and issues with that, and then hundreds of years later, he sends his son, Jesus, and sets up a new covenant 
and actually makes a way to really come out of exile and to have forgiveness of sins and, and to live in his kingdom. And we're actually still part of the story. And God's promises have not fully been fulfilled. But one day, Jesus will return and he will completely fill the earth with his presence and his goodness. His kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. He's fulfilled his promises all the way. So he will also fulfill his promise then. He's actually the God of hope. It's actually he's the one that acts in hope. Actually, we can be people filled with hope, especially in hopeless situations. Because our God is the God of hope. It's not that we work something up and we're like, let's just be full of hope. It's actually, no, our God is the one who's working everything to, for a better future. He's done all the things he said he would do. What he said is coming will come and we can actually be confident. We can actually, we don't have to base it on what we see, but actually on what he's promised. And the interesting thing is we may not see it happen some of the things that we're acting towards. Jeremiah didn't see the return to the land, but he acted towards it anyway. And, and, and we can, in a sense, look to what God has promised, look to what he said he'll do, and act in accordance with that. Again, Peterson says this, every situation we find ourselves in must be included in the kingdom that we are convinced God is bringing into being. Where is everything heading? What is God going to do ultimately? And actually everything we do gets brought into that line, into that story. He said, hope is buying into what we believe. We don't turn away in despair. We don't throw our hands up in disgust. We don't write this person off as incorrigible. It means like there's just no hope for this person. They're not going to change. We don't withdraw from a complex world that is too much for us. We actually act in confidence that God is at work that there is hope, even when it doesn't look like it. And we can actually, that, that's actually the main place to stay there. Um, Chesterton says it this way, as long as matters are really hopeful, hope is mere flattery or platitude. It's only when everything is hopeless that hope begins to be a strength at all. He said, like all the Christian virtues, it is as unreasonable as it is indispensable. Actually, it doesn't make sense to act in hope. It doesn't make sense for Jeremiah to buy a field. It doesn't make sense, maybe, things that God may call us to do. It actually may make people laugh or think that's silly. But actually, we trust God and what he says and what he's doing, and we act in hope. So we can be people filled with hope, especially in hopeless situations, because our God is a God of hope. And it's so, it makes such a difference to be, have that posture of confidence in the future. It, it brings energy. It brings life. It brings an ability to engage. Whereas when there's cynicism or despair or hopelessness, it's like we're on the back foot. We, kind of, we don't want to risk. And there's a comfort to living like that. But, but it, and it seems like, oh, this is the practical way to live. This is the realistic way to live. This is, and and it's actually, it doesn't really cost. We don't have to risk. Whereas to trust and believe God is a risk. But it's actually, it's actually the most practical because it takes God's word and his truth as, as the true reality. That actually what he has said is more true than everything that we see. We actually trust him and live by faith in him. Not by what we see, not by the circumstances, but by him and his purposes. But this can make such a big difference. Just, and, and, and it can be so hard when we're in situations that, that seem hopeless um, or feel hopeless. That the need for hope is so important. I felt like this a few years ago, um, 
not long after Tam and I got married, it wasn't because of Tam, it was because of me. <laughs> but like marriage like kind of brought out my issues, I guess, and my, my fears and my insecurities and my anxieties. And I just found myself battling a lot of emotional um, difficulties and pain. Um, a lot of my thinking was not in a good place and would spiral down pretty quickly and just get really negative. And, and working would be really difficult. I'd get angry. And, and it, was, it, was not a, it was not a good time at all and sort of went on for a while and felt in many ways somewhat hopeless. Um, and I, throughout this time, eventually got to a point where it was so bad uh, that I went to see a counsellor. And I remember the first time I went into his office and uh, just sort of didn't know him, got to meet him, just sort of shared some of where I was at, and he mostly just kind of listened and just gave some encouragement. But I still remember um, leaving, and he shook my hand, and there was this sense of commitment that actually I believe, just, he didn't say this, but it was this sense of like, we're going to do this together, I believe, and his eyes had hope. And it was just the way that he looked at me that there was hope. And it shifted something in me. It actually went, oh, okay, there's hope, I, I believe. And just that shift leads to ability to engage and to, to believe and then to act into that. And then we started to do a lot of work and work through a lot of stuff, but I still remember his eyes, just someone looking with hope shifted something. And it wasn't me that had hope, it was him. And in a similar way, in, in this story, Jeremiah's not the one that has hope. <laughs> God's the one acting in hope. He actually has eyes of hope. He actually looks with hope. And maybe even today, there might be a situation that you're facing or we're facing, and you kind of look and you just sort of think, there's no hope. And maybe there's actually a need to look sort of symbolically, in a sense, into God's eyes and actually see, he's the God of hope. He looks with, with, with the future. He's confident. He knows what he's doing. God doesn't look at the world. God doesn't look at our circumstances and say, like, oh, wow, that's so difficult, like, so overwhelmed, or, like, there's no hope. Like, God is not bothered in that prayer. Like, he says, nothing's too hard for his arm. Like, God will do what he said he will do. There's no question about that. Like, he's God. Like, so there's, there may be a need to look into his eyes and just see he's the God of hope. We don't have to work it up. We can trust in him. And then based on that, act in hope. Actually take a step. And that might be something to think and to pray through today. How might the God of hope be asking you in hope to buy into what you believe? That might, that might be simply a mindset shift or a heart shift of actually, okay, I'm in. I believe you, God. I'm going to act in hope. Um, it might be an actual act something that, that you feel like maybe he's saying to do. It might be a prophetic act of actually, I'm going to do this as a statement that I believe God and I'm in, even though it doesn't look like it at all, but I'm going to believe and I'm going to trust. I'm going to stay here filled with hope. And maybe, that, maybe there's a need to do something. Um, maybe it's just a heart. Maybe it's, maybe it's an attitude. So I'm going to pray um, just for that, and then, then we'll kind of transition and, and we'll have communion. So let's, let's really pray together. Father, thank you that you are our God, that you're the one who initiated this act for Jeremiah. You're the one who gave the promises. You're the one who fulfills your promises. You fulfilled your promises again and again and again. 
And just today, God, would you speak to us um, individually, God, even collectively, and, and show us, God, how to buy into your future and to what you're doing and what you're saying. Father, make us people who are filled with hope, even in devastating situations, God. When we come across people who it seems hopeless for them, God, fill us with hope. Give us your eyes. Give us your vision. And help us to see, Lord, our situations, our circumstances, our world through your eyes and to act in accordance with what you've said. And just even today, God, if there's something that you want us to do, particularly, God, would you uh, speak? um, Would you give us ears to hear um, and a heart to trust you? And just lead us in your way, we pray. Amen.